It was pretty painful because, frankly, our reporting, investor relations, especially, as well as our, our internal bookkeeping and tax, was just insufficient for, for how big we had grown. And so it was about a year of getting my teeth kicked in by my investors and also having to kind of rework everything from the bottom up to build up that infrastructure and take a lot of money out of my pocket to do so. But now I feel like it's made me a better manager long-term, but it was a huge mistake I made. I hope other sponsors kind of don't step in that same pothole twice. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Brian Adams from Excelsior Capital. Brian is a real estate investor, real estate syndicator, and today we're talking about some, well, we're calling them mistakes that he's made along the way. And he's being very open and honest and transparent with us, which I certainly appreciate and I'm sure you will as well. You're going to learn a few things from a successful commercial real estate investor today. Whether you're an active syndicator or a passive syndication investor, these things are all great to know because whether you're building a business in syndication or you're investing with syndicators, you need to know the right lessons, the right things to look for, or the right things to build into your own business. So we're digging into some of those today. One of the very great, thankful, happy reasons that we get to talk to guys like Brian is to learn from their experiences and build them into our own strategies, our own businesses, and move forward and be stronger together. I learned a lot today, and I'm sure you will as well. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I also passively invest in syndications. So these lessons are all right down my alley. And I know we have a lot of you out there listening who are in a similar position and need to know all of these things. Thank you for tuning in. Without any further ado, here we go with Brian Adams from Excelsior Capital. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great pleasure to talk with you. I uh, think you have a, a lot of experience to share with us, things we can learn from, and, and we're going to dive into that. For our listeners out there who don't know about you, don't know about your background, could you give us a quick intro to you know who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah, happy to. So I'm a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl. We met in college up in Connecticut. We did the Northeast thing for a little bit went to law school in Boston and moved to Nashville 15 years ago. So I practiced law for a number of years. And then my wife's family has a single family office. So through that family board position as an ex officio member, I got exposure to some of the investments we were making and, and the GPs and sponsors we were working with and became enamored with commercial real estate as an investment. Um, and that dovetailed with me being an aspiring entrepreneur I then connected with my business partner, who's also a New Yorker, who married a Nashville girl. And we started our company 10 years ago. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into kind of exactly what I do, but we are fundless sponsors. We raise capital on a deal-by-deal -deal basis. And um, today we have maybe two and a half million square feet under management across 12 markets in um, mostly the Southeast, the Midwest. So it's about a $400 million portfolio. Nice, nice. And you know, when things are rated in terms of square feet, usually you don't hear that in apartment context. That makes me think more storage or retail or industrial. Are you diversified across those asset classes? Do you have a focus on one of them? What's your strategy there? Yeah, so we only do commercial. So that can mean a lot of different things for us. Um, the, one of the reasons I love being a fundless sponsor and not being beholden to 
a PPM with with a with a traditional fund vehicle is I can go where the opportunity is. So we own office, industrial, flex, medical, and really um, one of the mistakes I made early in my career. We should talk about mistakes. I think we will later. Was being super focused on an exact product type, and then kind of bringing it to my investor network. When I started really scaling the business efficiently, is when I was realizing that my product type and the investor experience that I was delivering was was solving three problems, which is a place for individuals to invest capital that's uncorrelated to the market, solving for a double-digit cash and cash yield annually, and then taking advantage of all those tax benefits that come from direct real estate ownership. So those are the three things that we do. Our product type deal by deal is going to change a little bit depending on timing, opportunity set, geographic location, et cetera, but it's always going to solve those three problems. Interesting. Okay. So I, I like looking at this as a, a, a problem solving strategy. And one of the things that I, that I hear, or maybe a counterpoint to that would be, you mentioned solving for a double digit cash on cash return and something that's easy to do, particularly for, for newer investors who are newer at looking at commercial real estate is it's very easy to say, well, I want a double digit cash on cash return. Here are my assumptions. And what if I just tweak those a little bit and, you know, talk myself into a number? How do you, you know, obviously we're targeting returns, but like, how do you avoid talking yourself into doing a deal since, you know, we're all targeting different return metrics, right? We might target cash on cash, IRR, whatever. Um, how do you, how do you stay and keep like emotion out of that in terms of seeking a return? Yeah. So I think what you're talking about is an investment thesis with some kind of internal discipline and not suffering from style drift. And that's again, where I like the fundless sponsor model a lot because I don't have discretionary capital call down on so every time that I do a deal and I send it to my network, we're very fortunate to have a great, you know, robust investor network, but they're also very sharp individuals who have done a lot of commercial real estate investing over their careers and they ask very hard questions. So typically early on, I'm not going to be able to raise in that deal if a lot of my core anchor investors don't feel comfortable with it. They poke holes in it. And we have pulled the plug on, on a few things after you know, some of our larger investors or even more experienced investors have come in and, and pointed a couple of things out, made us change our assumptions. And I think that's a healthy process. So in terms of, of how we think about looking for opportunity, um, you can certainly pencil in a really big cap rate compression on the back end. You can certainly tweak some, some pretty significant assumptions on, you know, lease up, TI, LCs, et cetera. But after doing this for 10 years, um, I think we have a pretty good sense of, of where we can be successful and where we can't. And, you know, since we're significant investors ourselves, I think that's part of it is, you know, I'm also trying to solve this problem for myself and my family. So the alignment of interest, I think, is a big deal in terms of answering that question. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Of course. And you know, we wanted to dive in here to some mistakes that, that, you've made in the past. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I of course want to be, you know, respectful that you're willing to share those with us, but, you know, just to rip the bandaid off, I mean, let's dive in, you know, what's yeah. the first one you want to go over? Yeah. I think there's a, there's an issue within the sponsor community of this hero complex where everyone is talking about how great they are and how wonderful their deals are and how successful they are. Nobody talks about some of the failures they've had and it's just unhealthy in my opinion. So, 
a big one would be, you know, how to raise capital. I alluded to it earlier. I think a big mistake a lot of people make is they have the shiny object. They have this great deal and they just kind of go to their investor network and they cram it down their throats and they say, you should do this. It's terrific. But they never take a lot of time to think about from an empathetic standpoint, well, am I really solving the problems of my investor network, of my base? I mean, what do they actually want? And is my product offering solving those problems? And once I pivoted towards that concept of that kind of reverse engineered empathetic pitch, I scaled very you know, dramatically and started having a lot more traction with my investors. So one mistake is just, you know, there's a reason that we have kind of one mouth in two years. I think you know, we should listen more than we should talk. Um, so that was a big mistake. And the second one for sure was correlated to the kind of solving that problem. I, we, we fell into a trap where we were deal guys, where we went out and we raised a lot of capital. We acquired a lot of properties and it was great, but we did not take the time, effort, or money um, that we should have to build out the infrastructure of the business. And I think one of the biggest risks that occurs in this world, in this fundless sponsor model, and that one question that investors just don't ask enough is sure the deals have to work. The underwriting has to be good, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a risk that I think people can get their arms around. But the other risk that is really uncorrelated to the real estate itself is you're investing in somebody's small business startup, right? This person has to have the ability to have an understanding of tax, audit, HR, reporting, investor relations, marketing. I mean, they're running a small business and small businesses in America fail, right? I mean, the numbers are not great. So a big mistake that I fell into was just being a deal guy and not understanding that in order to scale efficiently, and to deliver the experience that my investors wanted, I needed to embrace being a small business owner. And it was pretty painful because, frankly, our reporting, investor relations, especially, as well as our, our internal bookkeeping and tax was just insufficient for, for how big we had grown. And so it was about a year of getting my teeth kicked in by my investors and also having to kind of rework everything from the bottom up to build up that infrastructure and take a lot of money out of my pocket to do so. But now I feel like it's made me a better manager long-term, but it was a huge mistake I made. I hope other sponsors kind of don't step in that same pothole twice. That's really interesting. You know, over the past few years, especially, I've noticed more of these kind of investor management platforms come to the market. You know, we've, we've talked about them on the show before. We use one of them in, in my business, and I've seen bigger sponsors as they grow begin to embrace them. And, um, you know, I, I definitely see the advantage of those, but you know, it's, it's managing the information, managing cybersecurity, tax reporting, all of those kinds of things. I guess, what did your systems kind of look like before, you know, when you're, <laughs> you're getting your teeth kicked in and then, you know, bringing them to where you are today? Like, yeah, walk us I mean, that. it was a lot of Excel, uh, you know, and it was MailChimp. Um, and it was, you know, even sending live I mean, this is 10 years ago, but, you know, sending checks as opposed to ACH or wires, it was pretty bare bones, to be honest with you. Um, so <laughs> that was really the extent of it. We, we third party, uh, we had a third party controller, third party bookkeeper, which was a huge mistake. And so kind of sequentially, what I did was I hired a, a CPA with a public accounting tax background to be my in-house controller, because for my taxable investors, 
that's a big deal, right? I mean, you, you can't give tax advice, but you can be hand in glove with your third-party tax advisors and you can make sure that you're doing everything possible from an internal bookkeeping perspective to leverage all of those benefits. So that was the first thing. And, and those, those guys, those people are not cheap if you want people who are good with experience. That was the first step. The second one was getting Juniper Square to be our investor relations portal in 24-7, 365, all the bells and whistles, migrating you know, 500 plus people over to that was horrific. <laughs> it took about six months um, and it was very painful, but now it's, it's great. You know, um, I think it has all the functionality that people want and we probably don't even use all of the efficacy that we could there. And then I hired a third party marketing person to help make sure that the success and the story of everything we were doing was being translated in a way that investors could could digest beyond just the, the quantitative side of it. So now we do a lot to enhance the investor experience beyond just the real estate investments we make. I like to think that, especially because I'm working with high net worth individuals and families, that we're providing them with something above and beyond just the economic returns. So we do a lot of webinars, blog pieces, networking internally, just to be a resource for them because I'm not after all their AUM. You know, I understand that they're going to be looking to deploy to other opportunity sets, other managers. And so we try to educate them, bring in our friends who we think highly of that could be a resource for them, both on the financial and the professional services side. And so now we have a pretty robust team along those lines, and it's made all the difference in the world. Nice. That's great. Now, kind of you know, toward the beginning of that, you mentioned the, the, the huge mistake of having third-party um, controllers and bookkeepers. Can you explain like why that would be? You mentioned the great guys are, are expensive, but mm -hmm. I imagine that's probably not what the big mistake was there. Like what, what was it? Yeah, it was just a, a misalignment of interest and not putting the right resources there. I mean, when you look at the budget and how you're spending your, your time and your money, you know, you can third party these things out, right? I mean, there are groups that will do that, but <laughs> the minute that your property, we third party property manage things. So we have to take all of the monthly financials from the third part, property, party, property manager, internally review them, sign off on them. And then we're going to give it to this third party group. And every time that that iteration occurs, there's usually a drop ball or a miscommunication. Mm. And if you're only getting 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week of somebody's time, when the clock stops, they stop working for you. And you know that's unacceptable, in my opinion, when you're trying to put out monthly P&Ls, you're trying to put together quarterly um, reporting. And frankly, when it comes to K-1 tax time, unless you have somebody very focused with your tax professionals starting in Q4, you're going to get put at the back of the line and you never want to be the squeaky wheel when it comes to getting K-1s to your investors. So now we have a goal. We, we almost hit it the last two years of getting K-1s out the door the first week of March. Nice, nice. And I, I also see something in there that maybe, I mean, it sounds like it, you know, reviewing the P&Ls yourself and then handing them off. It sounds like there's a lot of working in the business rather than on the business. And when you bring that task in-house, then, you know, you, you have somebody you're confident you can trust that you're not the guy having to do all the review. You can just have somebody else inside. Was there an aspect of that too, like freeing up more of your time in the week to you know, go look at deals and continue yeah. to grow? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Rockefeller, I'm going to murder the quote, but it's something like the minute that you can afford to have somebody do something that you don't excel at, hire that person, get it off your plate. And I think for investors, and and I, I'm better about communicating this now, is, is listen, it's great that you are investing with us. And I, I promise I've got a great team that's going to take care of you. But my time is best spent going out there and raising capital and finding opportunities because un- unless I can find the rest of the money, we can't buy this opportunity you're investing in. And so I've constantly got to be you know, doing the marketing, talking to potential investors, et cetera. That, that is my job. And that is what enables you to invest $50,000 or $100,000 into a $20 million deal. And so you're exactly right. It's having, uh, we have 15 employees now. And it's really kind of saying, okay, well, how is my time best spent to create value for the enterprise? And, and having that culture passed down from me to you know, everybody else, from acquisitions to asset management to uh, staff, accounting, et cetera. So I think that's exactly accurate. Yeah. So I'd like to make sure, you know, while we got you, I also ask about you know, any deal-specific mistakes that, that come to mind, too, that... Um, in terms of, you know, an actual deal that you did that, I don't know, maybe you, you would have done differently or not done or I don't know, whatever comes to mind. Yeah. So early on in my career, we were doing urban infill value add opportunistic development in Nashville. This is 2010, 2011 timeframe. A lot of deals. Nashville is not the city it is today, but it was getting there. But you could still afford to buy these things. And I had a good lesson. At the time, I had a third partner on this one deal who was not 100% focused. He had a side hustle, or we were the side hustle. And it was he was in charge of the development component of it. And we got caught up in a, in a zoning issue. There was a codes problem because we were relying on this grandfathered usage, and it's fairly convoluted. But there was a drop ball because he was out of town working his day job. Nothing something should have happened that day that didn't. And the next thing you know, we start getting calls from Metro Council and the Neighborhood Association. And it turned into a really big problem. We had a stop work order put on the project and we lost our tenants. And it was it was pretty hairy for about a year. And I had a personal guarantee on the deal. Oh. We worked it out. We ended up getting it even on the deal. So we didn't lose capital, but we didn't make any money. And frankly, it just took an, a year of our life where we didn't create any value for our investors and we spent all this time. So I don't do development deals any longer. I don't do value add deals any longer. And I don't take on recourse on these deals any longer. Um, lessons that are hard learned, but I'm thankful that it occurred early in my career. And, and clearly my partner and I are now 100% focused on our business, you know, other than our families is how we spend all of our time. Yeah, that's reasonable. I mean, a hundred percent is is ridiculous. You got to decompress somehow. I mean, there's yeah. you know the family, but we fine. don't have. This is our jobs. So. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. You say you're not doing um, value add because that seems to be. I mean, things might have shifted a bit here through COVID, but your know, value add over the last few years has been the predominant strategy for the deals that I look at because it's it's been tough to buy. Uh, with existing cash flow, and you know, people look to make that nut on the back end by raising the NOI. So, I guess, what are you looking for now if it's not, um, you know, value add or development? Yeah. So, 
We we look for you know ninety percent plus occupied buildings where we can thirty days after closing start sending out distributions because again my investor base wants yield they want cash flow they're trying to recreate a fixed income portfolio through alternatives and we're a, we're a component of that so most of the time my LPs are as focused on IRR I'm not as focused on IRR and. I think part of the issue is the, you know, the carried interest profile encourages people to take on risk to do these value add or deep value add opportunistic deals because that's where the GPs make a lot of their money. And for us, which is great, I mean, that's a good incentive, right? I mean, but the issue that I'm trying to solve is most of my LPs don't want the capital back, mm. right? Unless I'm going to get a big multiple, if I just give them 1.25 multiple on invested capital or 1.5 multiple on invested capital, that's great. Certainly no one's going to complain, but they have to redeploy that money. And so what I'm trying to solve for is a little bit different. And so what we've done is we've become very focused on smaller acquisitions. So kind of these $10 million deals where still three to $4 million capital raise, which is challenging for a local group, but below where even a large family office will, will, will kind of play. And we've carved out a nice little niche for ourselves where you know we send people monthly checks and um, we are very honest and transparent that these are going to be long-term holds. You're not going to get a crazy IRR. It, it's going to mean that my carry isn't as valuable, but that's fine. I enjoy the cash flow as much as you do. Um, and that, that, again, is just our logical investor base and what these folks want is what we're trying to solve for. Hmm, interesting. So you mentioned um, monthly, you know, we do uh, quarterly in my deals, but, um, you know, how does that, how has that played in? I imagine you considered monthly versus quarterly and, you know, it, it ends up being the same you know dollar amount at the end anyway, but, you know, your investors, I guess, like that, that monthly check. Um, we did quarterly forever and there's still some legacy deals where it is quarterly. Um, but the, f- we're constantly looking for feedback from our LPs about how we can you know, do better or provide a better experience. And a lot of them asked, Hey, do you think it would be possible to get monthly distributions? And to your point, just the way the assets work, you know, early in the quarter, you're going to get lower monthly distributions. We have to make sure that we get out the rest, but they just like that feeling, having something hit their ACH every month. And it reinforces that the property is, is cash flow positive, that it's performing well. And especially early on in the acquisition, you know, if you buy something, our, our usual rule of thumb is if it's, if it's, you know, after the middle of a quarter, we're going to do a stub and then it's going to be the following quarter distribution. And that's a long time to wait for cash flow. I understand. Um, so it was really just trying to taking that feedback from our LPs and my controller was not super pleased about converting to this. It's a lot of work, but the feedback's been positive. So hmm. interesting. Okay. Good to hear. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Brian, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Marry my wife. Nice. She's terrific. Took a lot of work. She wouldn't go out with me for three and a half. We met first day of college when I was a freshman. She wouldn't date me until uh, spring of our senior year. So it was a lot of work. Um, but... I finally, you know, uh, you know, convinced her, and um, so it was certainly uh, effort, but an investment, and it's had a good ROI. So been awesome, nice. 
On the other side of that, we had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah. And on the pre-call, you said that the best investment couldn't be education. So I'm going to say the worst investment was going to law school because <laughs> that was the worst three years and $150,000 I ever spent in my life. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I, you know, I kind of thought that might be the answer, but I didn't want to. Uh, I didn't want to prime the pump at all. Although, you, you know, if you if you take a broader view of it and you think if it saved me from a lifelong career as a corporate attorney, that's probably worth a lot of money. But it was a long three years. I mean, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, good to know. Good to know. My favorite question here at the end of the show is: What is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah. Investors will always appreciate candor and transparency. And if you don't provide it, their minds will go to the worst possible place. So I personally think in this business, people understand they're taking a risk. And as long as you're being a good actor and a gentleman and transparent and honest and open about what's happening with the investments, no one will begrudge you a bad performance or a loss. I mean, obviously we all want the deals to work, but the worst thing you can do, and it's really inexcusable now with, with technology today, is not have institutional level investor relations and reporting. Interesting. Good to know. Well, Brian, thank you for joining us today, bringing us all these lessons and helping us learn from uh, some of your, your mistakes so far. If folks want to learn more about you, if they want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, find your company, whatever, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So you can look me up, Brian C. Adams, Excelsior Capital, shoot me a note, connect with me. I'm happy to talk. Or you can go to the website. If you want to learn more about investing and the opportunities that we have, that's probably the best entry point, excelsiorgp.com. And you can sign up to get our monthly newsletter, as well as find out about some of the opportunities that are coming down the pipe. Awesome. Well, thanks once again for joining us today and uh, bringing us all these lessons. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. We are now live streaming on YouTube as well. So if you'd like to join the conversation live, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show on YouTube and hit the subscribe button, notification bell, and smash that like button. And we'll see you in the conversation live next time. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.